as we're jumping, I was thinking about something this past week. I was thinking about defining moments. And maybe you can think into your life and think, what are the defining moments of my life? I think about a generation. I think about, um, we have a defining moment for my generation. When 9-11 hit, that was like one of those defining moments where it seemed like the nation rallied around each other. And we had this sense of camaraderie that I don't think my generation has experienced. Maybe if you're in an older generation, you might remember Pearl Harbor or something of that sort. But 9-11 was one of those defining moments where it seemed like our country really rallied around I think about, personally, I think about my own defining moments. I think about uh, the first time I became a father. You've got this little bundle of joy who farts and smiles and does all those things that babies do. Like that was the defining moment because there's nothing I want to do for this little thing sitting on my lap. Thinking about, uh, um, thinking about another defining moment for me. My dad died when I was nine years old. That's 25 years ago uh, this year. And I think about that being a defining moment because that left a little bit of a void in my life. And it left me searching, hey, what does it mean for me to have a father? How, what does that look like for me? And we have these defining moments in our life that begin to change how we live because of that moment. And sometimes those defining moments, we can respond in the wrong way. So, for example, uh, when we had that baby, I mean, I could have ran as far away as I could. Like to think that that... I'm responsible to teach and train this child. Like that is a weight that is overbearing. And there's a part of me, I wanted to run away. There's no way I can do this. How can I be a good dad? Poor kid's got to learn from me of all people. So there's, there's these defining moments and sometimes we respond in a good way. And there's also times that we can respond in a bad way to those defining moments in our lives. What are the defining moments in your life? What is the defining moments in your life that have changed you from that day forward? Thinking about defining moments, I think Peter uh, is thinking about defining moments as well. Um, Peter is going to, uh, we're, we've been in the book of 1 Peter, so I invite you, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to the book of 1 Peter, if you need a Bible, I think we have an usher in the back, and if you slip your hand up, he'll bring a Bible up to you. Uh, you can pull up uh, on your phone as well or, or whatever, else, whatever, whatever technology you have. Uh, but we've been looking at this uh, book of 1 Peter for the last couple of weeks. And, and Peter's going to give us an understanding of what it looks like to have a, a defining moment and how that changes us. But the specific defining moment that, that Peter's going to come to is he's going to deal with the gospel. On, on, on when we have that defining moment, when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, how does that change our life from that day forward? And Peter's going to begin to wrestle with this is what it looks like. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Uh, if you say, well, I don't know where it is in my Bible. My recommendation is open to the end of the Bible, the backwards of it. You'll find Revelation and just move forward a few books. You'll find uh, Jude. And, and if you can find Jude, it's a short book. You'll find First and Second John, um, Third John. Then you'll find First and Second Peter. While you're turning there, um, I want to just take this opportunity to thank you uh, here at Restoration Church for your faithful support. Um, it's great to see the way that God continues to provide for our church. And uh, just because of your support, I want to highlight uh, just the opportunity for us to partner with Emily Roth. Uh, many of you know Emily. She is a young lady who God has called to go into the mission field. And so she's been in a, in a season where she's been trying to raise some support. And praise God, she's been able to raise the, the startup costs that she needs 
And so she's spending the rest of the summer in, in training and preparation for her to move to Spain in September. And so um, I just want to thank you at Restoration Church for allowing us uh, to partner with that, to support her on her mission uh, to, to, to go and reach the world for Christ, specifically in Spain. And uh, with that, I want to encourage you. We're going to have an opportunity next Sunday um, at, at, from two, of, 2 to 4 at Northtown Coffee House to kind of have an open house for Emily Roth. Um, if you uh, want to know more about her mission, want to know more about where God is leading her, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to come and hear her story, um, come and hang out for a little bit. If you've got kids, man, this is a great opportunity for you to come and, and bring your kids to get, have them catch a glimpse of, of missions, of what it looks like to serve God across the world. And if uh, you know Emily, this is just a great opportunity to encourage her and bless her. She's going to be leaving Yakima here soon. And uh, so we wanted to have this opportunity to encourage her in that. So we invite you next Sunday, uh, 2 to 4 at Northtown, to come and and, uh, celebrate uh, Emily with us. With that, before we jump in, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Then we'll jump into 1 Peter. God, we just want to thank you for uh, your grace today. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here. Uh, And right now, to be able to open up your word, God, we're thankful to be able to come and have, God, you speak to us. We're not here to hear a pastor's opinion, but God, we want your word to be spoken and taught over us today, that you would draw us deeper into our relationship with you, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would meet us where we are. God, I pray that you give us exactly what it is. God, you know where we've been this week. You know what our, our life is looking like right now. So God, I pray right now through your word, that you'd speak to every one of us in here today, Jesus. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we are 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 13 through 21 today. Um, it starts out in verse 13, and uh, you can follow along as I read it. It says, therefore, and we're going to stop right there. We're going to get one word in. The first word Peter says is, therefore. And the reason we want to stop right there is because from this point forward, the entire book is going to change. He's saying, therefore, as as a consequence of, because of what I just told you, as a result of that, I want you to know something. Okay? Whatever, Whatever Peter said in those 12 verses before, as a result of that, from this point forward, this book is going to completely change. So the question that we have to ask is, especially for those who haven't been here, well, what did, what did Peter say in the first 12 verses? Like, what happened to those first 12 verses? Here's what Peter did. He said, first off, I'm, I, I'm Peter. And Peter, we know he has a decent resume to write a book of the Bible. We know that if you were to look at the, the Gospels, the life of Jesus, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke and, Luke, and John, other than Jesus, nobody, his name is mentioned more than Peter other than Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nobody speaks more in those books except for Jesus, second only. No, Peter is second only to Jesus in speaking parts. When you look in those stories, Peter was there all the time. All the parts in red where Jesus is speaking and writing and teaching and doing all sorts of things, Peter's right alongside him. Peter was able to see all of this. We think, well, sure, certainly Peter has the authority to write that. But if you remember, Peter said, hey, the reason I'm writing to you is not because I have this great resume. He says, the reason I'm writing to you is because I have experienced God's grace in my life. I have experienced salvation, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. So Peter writes this letter and he starts writing about grace and salvation. He says, none of us can earn God's approval. 
None of us can be a good enough person to earn God's approval. Not even, not even Peter, who's writing the book. He said, none of us can. He says, what happens is that God chooses us. God looks over the course and he, he looks at every one of us and he draws us to himself. And he draws us to himself. And then he says the holy, or Jesus, he, his, he goes to the cross and he offers his life and he trades his righteousness for our sin. Jesus sheds his blood for us that allows us to be made right with God. Now then he said the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit changes us. It sets us apart with a new purpose where we can become the sons and daughters of God. He's saying this is what salvation looks like. God chooses us. Jesus gives his life for us. The Holy Spirit changes us. And this is what salvation looks like. And he says, goes on and he begins to write and he says, because of of Jesus, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, he says, we have a living hope. We have a living hope through Jesus Christ. And we know that because Jesus rose from the grave, we know that Jesus is going to make all things right. The worst things that the world could throw at him, death, destruction, man, Jesus overcame. He walked out of that grave. And so we have that living hope that today that Jesus is working to make all things right. And we may experience some of that in this lifetime, but we know there's a lifetime to come for eternity when it's going to be complete. And so he says, hey, we as Christians, if you have have understood the gospel, you have a living hope that God is working for you, for your good and for his glory. He says, in fact, this is so crazy. The glory of the gospel, that the prophets of old, Man, they longed, they wished to be a part uh, of the day and age like you and I, where they could experience the grace and, and the gift of Jesus Christ. He says, the angels up in heaven, they look down longingly to experience what we've experienced. And that's where the angels, they throw a party when one of us places our faith in Jesus. They throw a party because it's so miraculous to them. That we have, the experience, we have the ability to be forgiven of our sin and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what Peter says is, therefore, because of that, because of the gospel, because of Jesus going to the cross, because of the resurrection, he's saying, therefore, here's your new life. Here's what life looks like when you've understood those 12 verses. When you've come into a relationship with Jesus, therefore, here's what your life begins to look like. It's important for us to understand, Peter doesn't tell us how to live Until he's come to help us understand the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, what God does for us always precedes what we do for him. See, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I'm going to do this, and so therefore God owes me. But the gospel says, no, God's done something for me, therefore I'm going to serve him. And that's the way that Peter writes this book. He wants us to understand that what God does for us always precedes what we do for him. So the question, the question I want to ask you is this. Do you have a therefore in your life? Do you have a, because of that moment in my life, here's how I'm different. Do you have a defining moment in your faith? That because somewhere on your journey, somewhere in your life, those 12 verses became a reality. 
You understood who God was. You understood that you were a sinner and that God has chosen to redeem you, to send his son Jesus to make you right before him. Do you have that moment in your life? Have you stepped over that line to say, Jesus, I'm yours? And now do you have a because of that? As a result of me placing my faith in Jesus, now this is what it looks like. See, I have the privilege of being a pastor. I have the privilege of hearing everybody's stories. And I love hearing the stories of people's therefore moments. Of, you know what, this is what my life was like B.C., before Christ. This is how I lived. And then those 12 verses became real to me. And then I understood who Jesus was. I understood the gospel. And now I have this, this story of A.D., uh, uh, of, of, of Anno Domini and the year of the Lord. This is who I was. And then I understood the grace of God. And this is who I am now. This is how God has changed me. Do you have a therefore in your life? Because the rest of this book, this is what Peter's talking about. He's saying this is what it looks like for you and I to live as a Christian. This is what it looks like when, when Christ has come into our life and we have, have surrendered to him. It should be a radical difference. Your before Christ story and then your understanding of who he is and then trying to figure out what it looks like to live the Christian life. That should be a radical difference. Let me ask you, are, are you still living your own life just claiming it's his? Are you still living the same way you did BC just claiming a little bit of Jesus now. Do you call yourself a Christian? Or are you a Christ follower? See, one of those two things is easy. It's easy for us to say, hey, I got a new title. It's a little, little bit more difficult to actually live in a different way. And Peter, this is what he's saying. He says, it says because of salvation... Because of, of the love that God gives us in spite of us. In spite of our brokenness. He says, therefore, here's what it looks like for you and I to be different. And he's going to take this book and he's going to bring hope. He's going to give us hope in our marriages. He's going to give us hope in our families. He's going to give us hope how, how, how we can live in a, in, a, in, a, in a time when we become marginalized for our faith. How we can stand firm. As being a Christian in a society that, that oppresses Christians. So here's a question for you today. How's your therefore in your life? Today, maybe you need to consider your calling. Consider whether you're just calling yourself a Christian. Or whether or not you are truly a Christ follower. Are you willing to, to allow God to change you? Are you willing to allow God to guide you? To transform you. Are you willing to be different because of him? Like I said, anybody can call themselves a Christian. But Peter's trying to show us this is what it looks like for us to be a Christ follower. For us to be Christ-like. See, as I read the Bible, I don't see the Bible talking about just how we can have a new title. I see the Bible talking about how we can have a new life. And this is what we're here for today. Peter writes and he says, therefore, and now he's going to give us a couple of things about this is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. 
And this is what it's going to say. We're going to see three things that, that Peter's going to say. This is what it looks like. Therefore, you, you've come into a relationship with Jesus. Therefore, here's three things that it looks like for you and I to be Christ followers. He starts, and he says, verse 13, Therefore, everything's about to change. And here he goes. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Now, I don't know what translation of the Bible you're looking for. Mine says, prepare, uh, prepare your mind for action. The, the little translation, and some of your translations may say, gird up your loins. Now, I don't know about you. How many of you have a context when we say, gird up your loins? Now, I think, like, you're talking about pork loins? Like, what are you trying to do to my loins? Don't touch my loins. Like, that's personal. But again, we got to go back to that day. And that day, the dudes had these long, flowy robes, okay? And what would happen is they were getting ready for battle. They were getting ready for action. They would take this long robe and they, they'd scoop it up and they, they'd hold it out in front and they'd make it tight around their backside and make it tight. And then they'd take that and they would run it through their legs, kind of like a diaper, kind of like you're putting a diaper on, just being straight up. And they tuck it into their belt back here because now, now you're free to run. Now you're free to, you don't have this, 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 this robe banging around on your legs to trying to trip you up. And, 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 what, and what Peter is saying is, gird up the loins of your mind, get ready for battle. This is a call to action. This is to say, hey, hey, if Christ has come into your life, get ready. Be intentional about this. Be ready for action. He says, be sober-minded. Some of your versions might say, be self-controlled. This means have a clear mind about you. Have you ever noticed how drunks really don't make good decisions? That's probably why we don't like people under the influence to drive. I mean, have you ever met anybody who's saying, hey, I got a big decision to make, so I'm going to go throw back a six-pack before I make that decision? Like, that's just not the way that we would think. And Peter is trying to get us to understand, hey, we need to be ready for action. We need to have a clear mind. We need to be intentional and set and ready for this. Because of the gospel, he says, be ready, have a clear mind. And he says, here he goes, verse 13, set your hope. And I want you to circle this word fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is the first thing about what it looks like for you and I to be a Christ follower. Is that we are to live in hope. You and I as Christ followers, we are to live in hope. And I love this because here's Peter saying, listen, this is what it's going to take for you and I to be a Christ follower. We've got to be ready for action. We've got to have a clear mind to be able to focus. And we have to be willing to set our minds on hope. To, to hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, this, this idea of hope has kind of been the, the emphasis for the first chapter. I kind of feel like... Man, I'm just hitting the same, same, the same drum. Hope, 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 hope again and again and again. And what Peter's saying, it's intentional. We need to focus on hope. You'll say, well, well, what is hope? Hope is a Christian's attitude towards the future. See, faith and hope, these things are similar. Faith means I'm trusting for what God has already done for me. And hope means that I am uh, believing God for what he's going to do in the future. And this is what hope is. Hope is a Christian's attitude towards what's going to happen in front of us. Question is, why do we have to, why does, why does Peter keep dealing with hope? Why does he keep coming back to this idea about hope? That's where I encourage you, remember the context of what First Peter is all about. Peter is writing to Christians who've become marginalized. 
He's writing to Christians and he says, he says, you may be grieved. You may be crushed because of the circumstances in your life. You may be overwhelmed with various trials. This is a context he's writing to them in. He's saying, you are exiles. You've been removed from your homeland and you've been dispersed into a land that's not your home. Okay, these people are facing hardships. And what happens when we face hardships? We turn our hope that our circumstances are going to change. We base our hope that our circumstances get better. We think, hey, I'm in this difficult time. Man, if this just changes, everything's going to be okay. I'm in this health problem. If my health gets better, then I'll be okay. I've got these financial woes. If I can just get some more money, I can get out of debt, then everything will be okay. Or what happens is when you and I, we suffer that difficulty. We suffer, suffer that hardship. Maybe, maybe it's a, a death in your family. Maybe it's, it's unemployment that has ran rampant in your life. Maybe it's a rebellious child who's gone off to the far country and won't come back into the right way of living. We get to the point where we think, man, nothing can make this better. Where we lose hope. We say, man, this situation is so overwhelming, nothing's ever going to make it better. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. And this is where Peter wants us to understand that God didn't save us just to survive this life. See, John 16, Jesus says, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. He's overcome it. And then he says in John 10, he says, I came that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. And this doesn't just mean in the future. It even means today. See, God didn't save us just to simply survive this life. He, he, he made us to thrive. He made us to thrive. And if you and I are going to move beyond a, a melancholy enduring of this life to actually have a positive engagement in this world, then we have to be a people who have, who have uh, uh, decided that we're going to hope in an eternal future. That we have a hope that isn't based on our circumstances. We have a hope that's based on Jesus, who's promised, I'm going to make all things right. I'm going to make all things new. I've begun now, and I'm going to finish in the future, but I've begun this process. And that is where our hope lies. This doesn't mean that this life's going to be easy. He's writing to people in hardship. But if we have a, if you have a therefore in your life, if you have a moment when you came and you've accepted the gospel and you've believed in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then we are to live in light of the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus, that he is making all things right, that he is undoing all sad things. Do you know how much that is a different view than the world around us? The world around us says, hey, if you want to be, if you want to have hope, just change your circumstances. And this is probably, this message of hope is probably the message that the people around us need to hear. That despite the hardships we face, we have hope because of Jesus. We have hope this isn't the end. That, that just because we're in a difficult season, that God is still alive. He's still working things out for our good and for his glory. And that is our hope. And that is the hope that the people around us need to hear. That this is not the end. There is hope for the future. Because of Jesus. 
So he starts and says, listen, if you are a Christ follower, you are to live in hope. You're not to be swayed by the circumstances around you. You keep your eyes on the hope of Jesus Christ, that he is coming to make all things new. That he will redeem your life and change it for our good and for his glory. Next thing he's going to say, verse 14. He says, as obedient children. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. How many of you have ever known that? You start trying to follow Christ. And then it seems like the passions of your former life, they come back pursuing you. Come back, hey, come back and, and, and live with me again. Don't, don't pursue this Christ. Come back and do the same dumb things you used to do. That's how it works. So he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who, who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, the second thing that it looks like for you and I to be a Christ follower is that we live in holiness. We are to, to live in holiness in our conduct. To, to be holy. This word holy means to be set apart. To be separated. To be dynamically different. Something that we can't even comprehend. And when we understand that God is holy, we need to understand that he is dynamically different than us. It's not like God's just a little bit better than we are, and, 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 and so there's a little bit of familiar. No, God is dynamically different. There, we can't even comprehend uh, all that he is. In fact, there's a story in Job where Job's arguing with God, and, and Job's saying, you know, hey, why are these bad things happening to me? Remember that story? And, and, and remember how God responds to Job? Job says, God says, hey, when you create your own universe, then we'll have a conversation. But I created the universe. You haven't. So let's not think we're on the same level here. When you create your own universe, then we'll have that conversation. Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, he writes and says, from God saying, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like God is so holy and different than us, we can't even comprehend it. We didn't understand the way that we think is not the way that God thinks. The way that we act is not the way that God acts. And because God is holy, because he's dynamically different than us, he's called us to be holy as well. He's called us to be set apart, to be different. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I don't know if you've grown up in church, if you have a religious background. But when I hear the word holiness, that doesn't sound very fun. When I hear the word holiness... I think about, here's the list of rules you got to follow. Like, if you're going to be holy, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do. You've got all these rules you've got to follow. And that's what we limit holiness to being. Listen, it's, that's miserable trying to keep all the rules. That is a miserable life, just trying to, to keep all the rules. In fact, the Pharisees in the Old Testament, and, and the, the Pharisees in the Bible... You look at these were people who limited holiness to a bunch of rules. And they were horrible people. Jesus ragged on them time and time and time again. Holiness isn't just a set of rules that you and I follow. When we're talking holiness, we need to understand that God's holiness is not limited just to his actions. God's holiness is a part of his nature. It flows from his, his heart. You see, when we look at the word holiness, you might think of uh, the word wholeness, which is where we get our word holiness. 
kind of like this idea of, of wholeness of being. Holiness flows from our heart. It doesn't flow from our actions. Holiness is a heart issue. It's not an action issue. Holiness means that we become set apart for God at every part and at every level. All of who we are, we are set apart for God. And our heart is so inclined to to follow him that it changes what we do. We can't just limit being holy to to having a list of rules that we follow. It comes from our, our heart. It comes from within. You might say to be holy is to do the great commandment. To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what it looks like for you and I to be holy. And you see, do you see the motivation for holiness? I mean, so many times when you and I decide, hey, we're going to pursue holiness and we're going to follow those rules, it's because, hey, we want God to bless us. We want God to, to give us something in return. So, hey, God, I'm going to follow those rules and I'm going to try and be holy so that way you would bless me. But you see the motivation here is to holy, holiness is not to earn God's approval. He says, be holy as I am holy. See, verse 14, he calls us obedient children. Verse 17, he calls God our Father. He's saying the motivation for holiness isn't to earn God's approval. It's that you and I would live like our dad. Like we understand God's called us his children. He's our Father. The motivation for holiness is not to earn his approval. It's to be like dad. I mean, I think about every little boy I know. If they've got a good dad, don't they want to grow up and be just like dad? Listen, this, this may be why Christianity trips so many of us up. Because many of us have been scarred and battered and abused by a father figure. Someone who's supposed to be like our dad. And so then we come to church and we hear about God wanting to be our dad. And we're like, no thanks. I tried that once. It didn't work so well for me. I'm not really comfortable having God as my dad. And this may be one of the greatest attacks that Satan does on Christianity. Is causing men to fail as fathers. To, to destroy the very picture that God uses to have us understand what, a, what God is and what he's like. Listen, if you've been in that role that you've got a bad experience with a dad, let me encourage you to see God and all of his love as your good father. Because he's the one who gives and gives and gives and never takes and never abuses. But you see, when you see a little boy who's got a good dad, that kid grows up and says, I want to be just like dad. I want to be just like dad. My dad, I told you my dad died when I was nine. But one of the things I remember about my dad is he used to sing. He actually recorded a couple songs. Like, like Country Twang, they're really, my wife's heard them. They're, they're great. They're, they're old school Country Twang. But what I remember about my dad is my dad used to sing How Great Thou Art. And I remember him singing at church. I remember him singing it to the family. And, and I remember, man, I want to be just like that. In fact, there was a time, I think I've told this story before, where we're on a youth event and the bus broke down and everybody's singing. And I'm like, I'm going to sing. And I moved everybody to tears. Not because I was good, but because I was that bad. But I sang that same song because I wanted to be like dad. I think about, uh, we've got five kids. And think about, you know, you, kids when they're young, you have them fill out this little form. Like, you know, uh, how tall do you think dad is? And my kids are right. Oh, I think he's seven foot four inches tall and how much do you think dad weighs and 42 pounds and you know they, they fill this out 
It was great because on the bottom of that, the question was, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I loved it because my, cat, my kids, undoubtedly all of them at some point put, I want to be a pastor or I want to be a football player. Football player, I'd love for that. Say, well, man, that's awesome, Kevin. Your kid wants to be a pastor. I don't think a kid, I don't think my kids wanted to be a pastor at that age. I think they said, I want to be like dad. I want to be like dad. And whether I was working as a teacher, whether I was working in the state patrol, or whether I was a pastor, I think my kids were saying, I want to be like dad. This is what it looks like in our life to be holy, to be a Christ follower, is that we want to be like dad. The things that dad loves are the things that we love. The things that dad's passionate about, those are the things that we're passionate about. The things that dad hates, like the 49ers, those those are the things that we hate as well. Because I want to be like dad. This is what it means. You say, well, what does this look like in my life? There's a couple, couple things about holiness. Holiness looks like a, um, a devotion in our devotion to him. It's our commitment to him being completely different than our commitment to everything else. Like sometimes we think about, about our faith and we think about God and we think, well, I'll just make sure God's on the top of my list. Like, like I've got all these priorities, all these things I'm passionate about. God's on the top of that list. All right, men, just put yourself in this situation, all right? Imagine if I were to say to my wife, honey, of all the girls in my life, baby, you're number one. Men, how's that going to work for me? Not very well. Because the implication of that is I've got lots of girls and she just happens to be my favorite. Like I've got, I've got girls I'm a little bit attracted to, I'm a little bit in love with, I'm partially committed to others, but baby, you're number one. That's not going to work for me. Now my wife, she gets her own list. She gets her own list and that she's the only one. She's the only one on that list. She's, 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 there's no one else on that list. She is number one. Listen, is God on the top of your list? Or does he, have his own, does he have his own list in your life? See, he's not just your co-pilot. He's not just your co-pilot. He, he created the plane. He owns the plane. He flies the plane. He lets you be a part of it. God doesn't deserve just to be number one on our list. He deserves to be the only thing on the list. And everything else flows out of our relationship and our devotion to him. So we've got to have this, this, this devotion to him. God, I'm committed to you regardless. And I'm going to love everything else I am. Flow out of that devotion to you. Second thing I think about, uh, about our, our, our devotion to him, about our, our holiness, is that uh, when we're holy, we desire to reflect God not in our devotion, not only in our devotion, but also in our adoration and how we adore him. When we understand what holiness is and us trying to be like him, um, our, our adoration begins to change. And I'm just, I'm going to take a moment and be your pastor right now, okay? Because sometimes, most of the time I sit up here during worship. But there's sometimes I go in the back and I watch how we worship. And you know, sometimes it makes me a little bit sad. I just, I just want to be your pastor here for a moment. Because here's what I read in the Bible. I read Psalm 47.1 that says, Clap your hands, all your people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Psalm 35.27 says, May those who delight in salvation shout for joy. 1 Timothy 2 says, says uh, 
I command men everywhere to lift up holy hands. These are imperatives. These are essential commands. These are things that we are supposed to do. They require action. Nowhere in the Bible do I read that during worship we're supposed to stand with our coffee with a, with a, with a bored look in our face. He commands us to, to worship and have our adoration reflect who he is. And some of you say, well, that's not my personality. My personality is not to get excited. The thing is, when I read the Bible, I don't hear anything based on your personality. I hear this is what we're told to do regardless. The reality of it, we can get excited about all sorts of other things, right? We can get, get excited about, about Christmas. We can get excited about a sports team. So why wouldn't we want to get excited about God and show that? Because with God, you don't worship based on what you feel like, but you worship based on the fact that he's worthy. That's why we worship. And I just want to encourage us as a church to understand what it looks like for us to worship and to be expressive. Because I'm going to let you into a little bit of a secret. Oftentimes, our hearts follow our posture. Oftentimes, when we, when we go through, eh, 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 our hearts, we're going to follow our posture. Say, well, i just been not feeling it. Allow God to change your heart through your posture. All right, third thing. This is what it looks like for you and I to be a Christ follower. Third thing is he's going to say that we live in a reverent fear. We live in a reverent fear. Now, I'm going to be honest. Verse 17 was a hard verse when I was looking at it this week. And I spent some time, what does this mean? Here's what he says. He says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, did you hear that? He says, God judges impartially based on everybody's deeds. Listen, is that good news or is that bad news? Uh, don't answer out loud. You might answer wrong. That's bad news. Like would any of you want to go in front of the throne of God and have your deeds displayed on the screen and have God judge you? Anybody want to sign up for that job? I hope not. That would be rather overwhelming. Okay? We're a bunch of sinners. We all deserve hell. That's the reality of it. Okay? But did you hear what we get to call God? He says, we call him Father. See, this verse right here is pointing us to the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus was judged already impartially for our deeds. That Jesus already went and was judged impartially for us. That, that he received the full penalty that you and I deserved. And now, because, the, because Jesus has fully absorbed the penalty that we deserved... That we can call God our Father. And no longer do we have to fear judgment because Jesus has already been judged in our place. Do you understand how that works? And so he says, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, here's what he says, because of that, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. This is not a fear of judgment. Because remember, Jesus has already taken our judgment. This is more of a reverential fear. This is a sense of awe. 
a sense of overwhelming gratitude because of what Jesus has done for us. This is, this is reverence towards him because we understand all that he's done. And then this is what he says. This, he, he goes and says, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is why we give him reverential fear. He says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. Let me just pause right there. And again, with, dad, with Father's Day, some of you had a bad dad. Some of you had a poor experience of a father. And listen, when he says that you have been ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. Listen, the gospel has the power to break generational sin. You don't have to follow the same footsteps as your father did. Because the gospel has redeemed us. And some of you, by, by believing in Jesus, by, by believing in the gospel, you have the ability for God to change the course of your family history. From God to say, this is who your family was for generations, but now I'm making it new. I'm going to give you a new story. So he says here, I want you to live in reverential fear, knowing that you're a ransom, verse 18, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, such your faith and hope are in God. See, this is, means that we have a reverential fear because of all that God has done for us, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. It would be foolish for us to throw it back in his face and say, you know what, God, thanks for doing all that. Uh, that's great that you gave your son. And now I'm going to go back to living things the way I used to be. I'll tell you, give you an illustration of this. Many of you guys know I was adopted when I was a, a young child. I had a conversation with my mom, and she said, you know, Kevin, I knew that you guys had all the fecal alcohol, alcohol syndrome, and you had, you know, all that stuff that your family faced when you were growing up. And he said, we adopted you, and we wanted you to have a life that was free from the drugs and free from the alcohols and free from all that stuff. I'm going to be honest, my mom wasn't perfect. But I can tell you, my mom loved and, and, and she, she sacrificed and she struggled to give us a better life. To show us that doesn't have to be the way the life is. And as I grew up, uh, peer pressure begins to kick in. And people are like, hey, you should come and do some of these sorts of things. You should come party with us. And, 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 and uh, no, I'm not really into that. Come on, Kevin, are you afraid? Are you afraid your mom's going to beat you? No, I wasn't afraid that mom's going to hurt me. I was afraid I was going to hurt her. See, that's what it looks like for us to have a reverential fear. And when we understand all that God has done for us, man, how foolish would it be for us to go back to the same exact things that he saved us from? And this is what it looks like for us to have the reverential fear where, where God, I'm not afraid you're going to hurt me, but God, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt you because I know the love that you've given me. I know what you've done for me. And this is why that we live apart. That God didn't save us for us to go back to our old lives. God didn't adopt us so we could go back and say, hey, look, I found a new title. No, God saved us to give us a new life, to give us a heavenly home, that he would redeem our story for our good and for his glory. Let me just
technical difficulties. There we go. See, God didn't just want us to have things be better. And Peter didn't want us just to think, hey, things can't be better. Peter wanted us to understand that we have a living hope who's promised, who's promised that we have a future that is worth it, that we have a God who is working things out in our life. And Peter's going to write, he's going to say, you don't just have to wish that you have a better marriage. You don't have to just have this this generic hope that your finances are going to get better. He says, you don't have to have your fingers crossed and just have happy thoughts that your life will be good. He says, no, you have a hope. You have a real hope, a living hope. It's not just wishful thinking. It's the object of that hope. It's not just keeping our fingers crossed. It's what we're hoping in of Jesus Christ. It's not just having positive thoughts. It's the object of our hope of Jesus That we have hope in a living God who raised Jesus from the dead. And that is what our hope is in. That God, that that, that God who raised Jesus from the dead, that God, that God comes in and lives inside of us. That lives through us and that changes us from the inside out. And what we find is the more that we know God, the more that we understand his hope. The more that we know Jesus, the stronger our hope is. And that we can walk through this life. And listen, there's going to be times when it hurts. There's going to be times when you go through difficulty. But it's not going to break us because we have a hope that Jesus is on our side. That God is working things out for our good and for his glory. And this is the rest of the book. Peter says, therefore, because you have a relationship with Jesus, this is what it looks like for you and I to live as Christ followers. to, To live in hope. To live and not just survive the, 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 the junk that we face in this life, but to actually thrive. So let me ask you that question I asked you when we started. How's your therefore? How is your therefore? So you're looking at your life. What is your BC before Christ? What does your AD after Christ look like? Has your life changed? Are you really living your life and trying to claim it for God? Are you allowing God to change you, to make you different, to set you apart, to make you holy, to make you not just a Christian, but to make you a Christ follower? Let's pray.